Okay, um, Psalm 74, and you notice some comparisons about five or six points of connection between Psalm 73 and Psalm 74. I particularly think it's striking to see that point about the sanctuary because it was in the sanctuary in Psalm 73 that he came to an understanding of the prosperity of the wicked. In Psalm 74, that sanctuary is torn down. It is burnt down to the ground. But Psalm 74 is a psalm of national lament. Now, what I mean by national lament is this is not just of one person. This is a this is a whole nation. This uses first person plural the majority of the time, we and us, and not I and my. There are some I and my's, but I think we should see those I and my's speaking for the people collectively. Uh, these are the type of prayers that one might pray after a national 9-11 type event. A national lament. Sometimes we're not all going through the same thing at the same time. While one person is lamenting, another person is praising. But this would have been something that would have affected everyone. And psalms that would fit in this category are uh, 44, 79, 137 are some examples of psalms that fit in this category. There are others, but particularly those. Particularly those. Now, I want us to read the first 11 verses as they are uh, strong, heavy, uh, in lament. I want to ask you, as we read these words, what would have been a situation that inspired this? When would it have been written? Uh, What would have been the circumstance? And um, just anything else that stands out to you. But we'll read verse 11. A mascal of Asaph. O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. And this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt, turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees and now all its carved work they smash with hatchet and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer a prophet 
There's no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O God, will will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom? Destroy them. Okay. When would you suggest as a date for when this book was written and and why? Why would you say that? Wasn't the temple destroyed by the Babylonians? Okay. I do think that the very fact that it talks about the destruction of the temple does tie it to the destruction by the Babylonians. Um... They destroyed the temple. And what year was that? 586 B.C. Okay, 586, 587, uh, about that time. And I don't think that we can properly grasp how devastating a time that was to these people. Because they really lost three things of central importance. They lost the land. They were taken into captivity. Their story had started as slaves in Egypt, but now they're going back as slaves to Babylon. God had given them the land that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now they are ripped off of that land. They lost their land. They lost their king, Zedekiah. This has a way of sticking with people. Their last king was captured by the Babylonians. They kill his sons as he watches helplessly. And then his eyes are put out. They lost their land. They lost their king. And they lost the temple. The temple was built by Solomon and it was a place of God's dwelling. And God said, I will put my my eyes and my heart there perpetually. But if you leave me and you serve other gods, there's going to be a day that not one stone will be left upon another stone. And people who pass by will say, what happened to this great house? And it will be said, they forsook the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt and they served other gods. They lose all of these. How did their faith even survive? Now, one of the things you notice about Psalm 74 is there's no confession of sin. Now, I take it that they're that they are that that is assumed to some degree there. They are not asking so much why it ever happened at all, but how long this state will go on. But I will tell you something. Um, I mentioned this in the, in the Bible class here Sunday morning. I didn't mention this anywhere else, but. Just Saturday night, I was writing in person. It was the first congregation I ever preached in when I was 16 years old. And uh, I said, you know, hope you're doing well. We're praying for your son. I knew his son had been very sick. 
hadn't written in about a couple weeks. And he said he passed away today. And uh, his son was 40. <clears throat> he had a couple of small daughters. And I was asking Monday, yesterday, another Christian in the area who is friends and family with them. And I said, how are they doing? And they said, you know, even as Christians, we ask, why? And I said, why should that surprise us? People in the Bible ask why all the time. God records these people asking why to help us when we had those questions. They ask why. You notice that question in verse 1. You notice it in verse 11. In a certain sense, this section, if you make verses 1 through 11 all one section, it begins with a why, it ends with a why. And another question that I often connect with that is the question in verses 9 and 10. How long? How long? How long is this state of affairs going to be taking place? But I want us to see too. I want us to see, and it's always easier to look at this passage and to analyze it than to be the one experiencing the difficulty. I I know that. I, I know that. At the same time, it is strengthening our faith by reading these words and reflecting on them that can hang on to us in those times of difficulty and and make us uh, be strong. I do think, by the way, because this would be so devastating, that is why God had sent Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel was in captivity. Jeremiah was in the land. And they kept telling the people over and over again as a broken record, it's going to happen. You're going to fall. And they were unpopular, and people didn't like to hear them preach. But the day was going to come when they were going to need that. When it fell, they could remember, listen, God said this was going to happen. And God said this is going to happen, not because He's not strong enough to prevent it. He said it was going to happen and um, because of our sin. I think, I think that some of those passages on persecution serve that purpose. They may discourage us when everything's going well. But, but in the time when we're suffering, we need those passages to look back and say, listen, he told us. He told us these things beforehand. And, um, but it doesn't contain a confession of sin. And the first verse He doesn't mention the Babylonian enemy. Doesn't mention them. He refers it all to God and His anger. Why have you rejected us forever? Why does the smoke, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? I wanted to find the statement, uh, but, but one writer said, It is faith more than doubt that precipitates this question. Now, I want to explain that. It's because we believe 
God is good. And God is holy and righteous. It's because we believe those things that we have trouble reconciling those things with the confusion and sin that we see in the world. So the question can be an indication of faith. It can be an indication of faith. And why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? God is indirectly pointed out as shepherd. And we're your sheep. But the sheep defends the shepherd. The sheep doesn't consume. The shepherd doesn't consume the sheep. The shepherd protects the sheep. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And you notice in verse 2, he refers to Israel as your congregation, which you have purchased, which you have redeemed. He refers to their past relationship to God. He doesn't refer to the people's merit. He doesn't refer to how good they are. He simply refers to God's relationship with his people. Do you remember in Exodus 32 when Moses was praying? And in Exodus 32, God says, I want you to go down. This people that you led out of Egypt have turned away from you. And and you remember Moses' prayer? He's quick to point out, Moses, it's not my people that I led out of Egypt. It's your people. And and here he's doing the same thing. The, The sons of Asaph are doing the same thing. It is your congregation which you have purchased and you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. And this Mount Zion where you have dwelt, that shows its dealing specifically with the temple, uh, as Vicki mentioned. And this temple has been destroyed. It is in a state of perpetual ruin in verse 3. And the enemy has damaged everything, everything within your sanctuary. Uh, sanctuary is used in verse 3 it's used in verse 7 now again that had been the place where the light was turned on in Psalm 73 but now there is no place like that for the light to be turned on I think The judgment of 587 would have been particularly devastating if you were a faithful Israelite. If you were one of those few who were faithful. And you know, sometimes what you do when you look at your own life, you assume everybody living the same way as you're living. I didn't appreciate my parents enough because I thought all families stayed together, had plenty to eat at night, went to church, behaved somewhat civilly toward each other. And I thought that was normal until I encountered a whole lot of cases that wasn't so normal. And then all of a sudden, you began to appreciate 
what you had. And I think sometimes when we serve the Lord, we assume other people are looking at things the same way we do. And for these people who were faithful, it would have been devastating to see the land taken, the land controlled by Babylon, the king uh, captured and made a slave and the temple destroyed. Ezekiel apparently was surprised and in Ezekiel 8 to 11, Ezekiel says, I want to show you, God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to show you why I'm doing this. And he shows him the idolatry that's going on right there in the temple. And he says, this is why I'm doing this. And Ezekiel apparently was stunned at that. But verses 1 through 3 just describe one writer um, said that he begs God to turn from his anger and to show the people mercy. Any thoughts there on those verses? I know you said that there's no confession here. But I, I did find this um, a, maybe a difficult psalm because there was no confession. Yes, I, I... Now, the only one of these psalms, Vicki, where you find some kind of a plea to righteousness or for righteousness is Psalm 44. Psalm 44, they not only do not confess sin, they argue in that psalm they have been faithful. I place that at a different point in their history than Babylonian captivity. I don't know where we put it. But I think you've got to put it in a different point. I do understand what you mean. That that does present some difficulties here. There is no affirmation of innocence, though. There is simply a plea, like we stated in verses 1 through 3, that these are your people that you've redeemed, and he asks God to have mercy on them later because they are his turtle dove, uh, I think is the translation of the New American Standard, and they have a unique relationship with God, and uh, also because they're poor and needy. So... I think there's somewhat of a recognition that they have sinned to do this. I am taking into account there the whole biblical story to say that, though, and not just this psalm. But, but you're right. I mean, he doesn't just pour it out. Go ahead. Well, you used the word relationship, and they yeah. did not have a relationship with God. Well, it had been it had been broken by their sin. You're right, and but but that's what they are appealing to. Uh, and so Bob's hand in Mary's. I'm just he he kind of owns it. The only place he gets close to owning it, if you will, it seems to be in 18 where he says, "Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name." And that, that seems yes. to be. We messed up in a big okay. way, and we're getting our comeuppance. I don't see that as a confession of okay. sin, but it kind of it points some to we're getting what is coming to us. Perhaps yeah. you know. Seems, yes, it seems can. If if it is talking about Israel, I think that that would be it. I I have kind of interpreted that Bob as a reference. 
to the Babylonians. And, and uh, because it would fit the first part of the verse. But you would take care of that problem, you know, if, if we would take care of Vicky's question. So, but verse 18 that, that Bob mentions is probably the closest we've got. I th- one, of the, one of the things, too, I'm trying to think through why I was thinking that, Bob. Um, in verse 22, he uses that same word foolish again. That is definitely the Babylonian. <clears throat> But 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 we can we can watch that. That may be a good point. Mary, you had a thought too back there. Um, not a confession, but it's definitely the thought that God is the only one that can help them, and they are appealing to His yes, like Moses did, appealing to His character and His promises that He not forget that. They appeal to His character. They they look to Him His strength. They are not getting the petition up, and I'm not saying that there's not every, there's never a point to do something of this nature because you find the uh, people in Exodus making some kind of an appeal to Pharaoh, for example, like that. But they, they're not, they're not taking this this plea to the Babylonian government. They're taking this to God. They're taking the plea to God because God is the one who is in control of all things. And that's where they take this problem. Uh, but, but those are good thoughts. Now, verses 4 through 8, he describes the problem in greater standard, in greater level. In, in verses, verses 1 through 3, he talks about um, begging God to turn from his anger. But then he, he kind of relates step by step all that happened. And particularly, it is hard to imagine how horrible the destruction of the temple was. Your adversaries, in verse 4, have roared into the midst of your right meeting places and they have set up standards, their own standards for sign. When, when you hear a word like, they've roared into your meeting place, what, what's the idea there? It sounds to me he's using the imagery of like a wild animal coming in and just so out of control, just so ferocious. And that's the way they have entered this holy place where there were specific rules. There were specific rules that only the priest could go into the holy place as they did the work of the temple. And only the most a high priest. The high priest could go in the most holy place once a year. All of these rules would have been completely ignored as these adversaries roar like wild animals. And in place of all the things that they had that showed their devotion to God, they have set up their own signs in devotion to their gods and emblems of their military. Now, verses 5 and 6, verse 5 in particular, difficult to translate. But the basic idea is they have come into this temple with all these fragile works of art and with all these designs they had. And they have roared in with their axes uh, like a lumberjack in the midst of a forest, cutting down everything, tearing down everything. Everything. 
It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees, and now all its carved work, they smash with hatchet and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground and defiled the dwelling place of your name. Would any king allow his temple, his palace, to be burned down like this if he could stop it? And this presents confusion in the minds of these Israelites. They know their God is mighty and powerful to save. And yet, this is exactly what has happened to his house. They burned your sanctuary to the ground and defiled, defiled your dwelling place. And verse 8, they said in their hearts, let us completely subdue them. And they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Do any of your versions in verse 8 have a different word for meeting places there? Where God was worshipped. Where God was worshipped. Where God was worshipped. The King James Version had the word synagogues here. And should it have been translated that way, uh, man, if you want to spend a lot of time studying about something that's not going to have a whole lot of practical application to your life, uh, you can read all that's been written in the translation of Psalm 74 and verse 8. Because there's a lot of uh, confusion about it. Because that is a possible translation, some people at one time used to date this psalm back to the invasion of Antiochus Epiphanes in the temple, which would be 400 years later than this, because synagogues were around in that particular time. And uh, But I, I think all of that's unnecessary. And it does seem like there were other places in the land, think about it, isn't it just obvious that people would have met for worship and prayer? There's references to these sometimes uh, about they went to a place. Um, well, I'm thinking about a re reference. I was looking at the Apocrypha in 1 Maccabees uh, 3.46 where they went to a place of Mizpah where there was a place of prayer. But, but, um, but anyway, they have tried to eliminate God's name from everywhere. And um, seems like they've been pretty successful in that too, doesn't it? And how can God let that happen? You know, I, I, I will get some things in our land and I think, how did it happen? How did we let that happen? How did God let that happen? What do you think of people in North Korea think? I just can't imagine what those poor people go through uh, who do profess faith. Bob? Uh, just came to mind because we've been studying in Joshua and we've seen the same thing happening to the inhabitants of the land. They're virtually, utterly overrun and overpowered. And I think the same thing is taking place here, but it's... Absolutely, reversed. absolutely. So we can see it from both how they would have felt their, their hearts melted as wax because of these people now. The reverse is taking place. 
they're losing the land and the enemy is affecting the same terror on them. You're exactly right. They're experiencing the same thing and they're experiencing it for the same reason. Canaanites were driven out because of their sin. Israelites are being driven out because of their sin. In a way, it fits the biblical picture that goes back even to Genesis 3 as man and woman sin in the garden. They're driven out. That word that's used there is a word that's used for the Canaanites a lot. And it's a word that's used sometimes of Israel being driven out. It's the same story. God is trying to place a relationship with his people or build a relationship with his people and dwell among them. And God's people keep pushing him away. And finally, God pushes them out of the land. But it is also confusing to Israel that in the midst of all of their suffering, in the midst of all they have seen, the horrors they have seen, and Lamentations is a book that goes into more detail than any about how they would have seen children starving and people dying by the sword and, and how horrible it was. But now after it's over, there's no quick restoration. And they say in verse 9, we do not see our signs. The same word signs used in verse 9 was used in verse 4. They don't see, we don't see our signs. Maybe that's emblems of the military. Maybe that's something that reminds them of our God. They don't see theirs, but in verse 4, they saw the enemies. They saw these pagan symbols. We do not see our signs. There is no prophet any longer. Now, we know there were prophets after Babylonian captivity, but... Jeremiah was carried off to Egypt and Ezekiel was in the land of Babylon. Daniel was in the land of Babylon. Maybe they're referring specifically to the poor people left behind in Judah. There's no longer any prophet and no one is here who can give us an answer. No one can tell us how long this is going to go on. How long, he asked in verse 10, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? He builds upon the people's relationship with God or what it should have been and also God's name. And he says in verse 11, Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom and destroy them? Why do you... Why do you with... Okay, wait. Did I read that right? Why do you withdraw? Okay, the point is he's putting his hand in his bosom and he's not bringing forth his hand to destroy them. There are a couple of good quotations that I jotted down. And uh, let's see if I can find them. ESV says, why do you hold back your hand? Hold back your hand. The idea is he's not using his hand to destroy them. Yes, so so yes, that is the idea. But I was thinking there was a knot there in the New American Standard too. And there's not unless I missed it. Been reading it in there, I'll tell you that. But um, one, he says, um, just hands in his pocket. 
<laughs> yes, that's right. Why does he hold back his right hand rather than immediately end this gross challenge to his divine authority? Another writer said, why does he not pull his right hand out and with one mighty blow end the arrogant invasion of his domain? You think about this. Husband and wife are walking somewhere on a street and someone comes up and attacks the wife and the husband stands there and does nothing. Not only does the husband do nothing, but the wife knows that while the enemy is too strong for her, her husband could take care of him instantly. Would that raise a question a with most women? <laughs> it would raise what? A couple of questions. A couple of questions, yes. And I think in the same situation with Israel. Israel, the question behind verse 11 is they know the power of God. They know that God can bring out his right hand and smash the foe instantaneously. They know that. And the question is, why doesn't? And it's the same question in a different way that we were asking at the beginning. Why is it that a 40-year-old dies of cancer, a 40-year-old Christian dies of cancer when he has two children that are under 10? We know God has the power to stop it. Not only do we know it from examples in the Bible, most all of us have seen situations that looked hopeless where God gave an answer. What I'm trying to suggest is we all wrestle with this question. It is a question that the Bible deals with straight on. It doesn't always give us easy answers, but it does show us that we have the questions. And I think it does point us to some answers. I'm not saying it doesn't point us to anything. Mary? So do they not remember all the prophets where God told them of the hope after the captivity he would bring them back? And that's that it a good was question. Be a period of time, and yeah. why he was going to wait—it's just not. All they just forget that because <laughs> there was more than one prophet. You know, every time he condemns them, he always gives the hope. I can't think of any prophet who is just giving judgment and no hope, with the possible exception of Nahum, who is just preaching to Nineveh. You know, Nahum is preaching to Nineveh. He's not giving them any hope. But he is giving God's people hope in the midst of that. So are they just have tunnel well, women in their own self-pity? Think about it this way, Mary. And, and, and this hit me as you were asking the question. Why is it 
that when Jesus is telling all of his disciples that he's going to be crucified and be raised the third day, they're always grieved at the news of his death. They don't focus on the resurrection. Maybe because chronologically it comes first. And you remember the statement that's made in Exodus uh, 4 through 6. Moses goes to the people and first they're uh, all excited that Moses has come to deliver them. When they hear that God is concerned about them, they bow low and they worship the Bible says, but then after they have an encounter with Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, you're lazy, that's why you don't make enough bricks and you're going to have to make the same amount of bricks but you're not going to be given any straw. Moses comes back with another message of hope and it says they did not listen because of the discouragement. I don't mean what I'm saying, Mary, to justify them in that, but I guess I am saying I understand them. It doesn't justify them because we've got to do that. And I think that's the thing that can give us strength. If we can look and we see those pictures of hope in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, those do inspire our heart and help us to hang on. And eventually the clouds will dispel and the light will shine. And the light will shine brighter than it ever was shining. But I think we all sense some of that, I believe, help my unbelief. I think your question's good. But I think, you know, think about the disciples after Jesus dies. That any of them think about the resurrection. His enemies do. His enemies knew it. But it doesn't seem like the disciples did. And... Um, what other thoughts? That's a good question Mary gave. I don't know if that was the best answer, but but I'll tell you what happens in the midst of this, and I like this. In the midst of this description of all this lament and mourning, and he's going to come back to that in verses 18 through 23, but in verses 12 through 17, there is this section of praise of God's power. I want to ask you as I'm reading this, what is this talking about? Um, what particular biblical events would be associated with this? But he says in verse 12, Yet God is my king from of old. They may have lost their king, but God is still king. God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You broke him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made both summer and winter. Now one of the things we've tried to say here in a very simple way is that in Hebrew, when the separate personal pronoun is used, it is a matter of emphasis. 
Because the person that is acting is often indicated by the verb. And when a separate personal pronoun is used, it is really being stressed, it is really being emphasized. The separate personal pronoun, you, is used seven times in verses 13 through 17. Seven times in verses 13 through 17. Over and over it is stressing what God has done. What God has done. One of the things we need to remember when our faith grows weak. To remember what God has done. Remember His mighty acts of salvation. God is my King from of old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth, the midst of the world. In verse 4, it may be that the enemy has roared into the midst of God's meeting places, of God's sanctuary. But God has brought salvation in the midst of all the earth. The text talks about God dividing. What is the event that's being talked about? In verses 12 through 17. One of them might be the creation. Okay, I think creation is definitely under discussion. Now, why would Vicki say that? I think she's right. Why would you think creation is under discussion? In 16. No, go ahead. Just to show the power of God. Okay, it shows the power of God, uh, but you were saying, Vicki, particularly well, verse... verse 16, you established the heavenly lights. I mean, God, okay. God made... Yes. The language of verse 16 does sound a lot like creation. And it does show, as Boyd was stating, the incomparable power of God. Think about a God that is able to speak this world into existence. And that is absolutely an amazing thought that he simply spoke it into existence. But the language in verse 16, yours is the day, yours also is the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. Remember on the fourth day in Genesis 1, verses 14 through 19, God divided the, the, the light from the day and the darkness from the night. And he called the uh, light day the darkness night. And God made the sun to rule the day, the moon to rule the night. Uh, the statement in verse six, or 17 about making summer and winter uh, is... Uh, found in Genesis 8 after the flood where God says um, springtime and harvest and summer and winter will never cease. Now, you have this language here in verse 14 about Leviathan. 74 verses 13 and 14 of Leviathan. Uh, we're supposed to pay attention to that beep in there. Just <laughs> if it doesn't hurt us, just go on. Okay. You thought your battery was on. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, it may be. No, it's good. Oh, it does have just 25 minutes. So maybe that is that. But um, Leviathan. Leviathan is mentioned in some places like Job 
3, 8, Job 41, 1, um, Psalm 104, verse 26. Someone read for me Isaiah 27, 1. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the uh, fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Okay. He's called Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent. And... Uh, <coughs> Now there is a passage. Look at Isaiah 51.1. I thought it mentions the seven heads of Leviathan. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Okay, you read verse 9. Verse 9. I wasn't seeing Leviathan there. Awake, awake, put to strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Okay. It, it, it seems like it, it's taught, it uses Rahab as the Leviathan, but you see it's kind of the description, the same kind of thing. Does it say seven heads in verse 11, Bob? I'm not seeing it. Okay. I can't remember <laughs> that. But the point is, Leviathan was viewed as some great monster. Now, and you see these descriptions of it. Those are some of the passages and we could go, I think the picture that's given of the devil in Revelation 12 and 13 is a picture that's built off of this in these Old Testament passages about Leviathan. But this is Other ancient Near Eastern peoples had stories about their gods and they had at creation their god destroying this great sea monster and giving control of all the world to, to those people. And the Bible, I think part of what the Bible is doing here, it, it's taking these kind of stories that existed among other nations about Baal, about Marduk slaying this great giant or this great beast that dwelt in the sea. The Bible takes that kind of language and says it is not your God, Baal or Marduk, who did those kind of things. It is the real God, Yahweh who does these things. He's the one who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. But this is showing God's unlimited power and might and how he displayed that in creation. Now sometimes particularly that term Rahab that Bob read in Isaiah 59.1 is used in reference to Egypt, specifically called that in Isaiah 30 verse 7. So I think there may be something of the exodus from Egypt included here, but, but when our faith to God grows weak, just think about what was displayed 
in God's creation that God spoke all this into existence. And I mean, we look at things on the earth and we're awed by them. And God effortlessly brought them forth. And we know the Creator has to be greater than His creation. You don't create something greater than you are to begin with. How big is God? That causes us problems in our pain. But at the same time, it's an assurance in our pain. Keep staying the course. Keep serving Him. Don't give up. Because ultimately, this God will work out all things according to His plan. But in verses 18 through 23, He once again puts Himself pleading with God to judge the enemy and to rescue his people. In verse 18, Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. And that's the verse that we were talking about. Could be a reference to God's people. Could be a reference to Babylon. Verse 19, Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast, He has compared them before to wild animals roaring into the temple. Don't give the soul of your turtle dove, your your fragile and frail people, into the hand of the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. He asked God to remember in verse 18, remember the enemy. And he asked God not to forget in verse 19. The life of your afflicted. In verse 20, consider the covenant for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Maybe there were all kinds of places in Israel like there are in places today. You just didn't go in dark because they were dangerous. And and, and it has become that way for God's people in their own land. In verse 20, let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let let the afflicted and needy praise your name. Now I want you to notice the contrast. In verse 17, a foolish people has spurred your day. Verse, verse 18. Verse 21, let the afflicted and needy praise your name. In contrast to spurning your name, may they praise your name. In verse 22, Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends continually. Now, the word arise in verse 22, it is an imperative. In 74... Verse 22, the word arise is an imperative as he is calling upon God. He is begging God, arise, come to our defense, fight for us. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. But notice in the next verse, it says the uproar of those, verse 23, of those who rise 
against you. Now, the word rise in verse 23 is the same word translated arise in verse 22. He calls God to arise because his enemies have arisen against him. His enemies have risen against him and he is asking God to rise up, to put down his enemies, to defeat them and to mock them. I I know, I mean, we've, we have been studying these Psalms for, now this is about two years, we started in February of 2021 and Lord willing, next week we reach halfway point. I know that that seems incredibly slow, and yet there are parts of me that feels like I am rushing through some very important material, and it's kind of like one of those journeys you want to make sure you take it in the first time because you don't know if you can convince people to take it to the second trip. Um, you're going to feel bad on that. February of 2025 where we start Psalm 1 over again. (laughs) (laughs) So so I don't want to rush if you've got a question. And I know that a lot more detail could have been gone into. But what questions, what ideas do you have? I couldn't help but think of Moses pleading with God when he uh, people were so unfaithful and uh, uh, God telling him to stand back and I'll destroy them and make the nation out of you and Moses pleading with God not to do that yes I, 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 there probably is no connection between those mm-hmm. two events but I could not think of uh, God God's anger with Israel at that time well we just see how many times we get a hint I don't think we probably see it all a hint of how many times people deserve judgment and God was on the verge of pouring out his judgment but because of the intercession of someone or because of a repentance of someone God is long suffering and so when he does finally pour out his wrath I think that we as people have to understand we deserve it. Um, I like the answer that one person on the radio gives when asked how he's doing better than I deserve. And it's a description of all of us. If we wake up this side of hell doing better than we deserve and so Uh, like in the last psalm when uh, the psalmist went into the sanctuary of God then his attitude changed you know he he saw things differently in this psalm when uh, he focuses on God in verses 12 through 17, we don't see him asking any more questions about why. Okay. 
He does not ask why. That's right. That is a good point. He is still pleading and begging God to take quick action. But you're right. He does not. He does not ask why as much. And I think it is a good lesson to remind us in the midst of the pain to praise. And that somehow praise may help light shine through somehow. And um, may God help us all to do that. Yes? G.K. Chesterton said, we need more people who pray and fewer people who say their prayers. And I think we don't see God reacting negatively to people who wrestle with Him in prayer. And this, to me, is a good example. Yeah. It, Job wrestled with God. Yes, yes. He, he went too far in some cases, and God, yes. mm-hmm. God corrected him, but God didn't rebuke Job for wrestling with him, nor do I, do I understand that to be true here. I, I think you're right. I, I think there are points where Job oversteps the bounds and Jeremiah does uh, in one of the midst of his complaints in Jeremiah 15. Uh, but yes, you see that there is a right way to do this in Scripture. There's a right way. And the very fact they are going to God with the complaint is an indication that they're looking to Him for the answers. In the midst of this crisis, they are not giving up. And would it have been difficult to have understood if you were in the land at this time and you have lost the land, you are now slaves in a foreign land, you have lost your king, which was a big deal to people in the ancient world, and you have lost the place where your God is worshipped. Would it have been difficult to affirm and to believe that our God is the only God? The God we serve is the only true and living God, even though we have lost our land, we've lost our king, and we've lost our temple. To some degree, our faith is always affirmed in the midst of a world that doesn't look like God is ruling. To some degree, that is always the case. Now, there are moments when enough things are falling into place, we can at least have something to hold on to for hope. But there are some moments when all hope is gone in the midst of, and I'm talking about from outward circumstances. Can we hang on to those statements praising God in Scripture? I'm not trying to short-circuit this conversation, but I do think in the problem of suffering, Keep going back to cross. Would it be difficult if my son dies of cancer at 40 and leaves behind a couple of little children? Would that be difficult? Of course it would. It would be difficult for all of us. God's son didn't make it to 40. And I think 
and weigh all of our problems go back to the cross. And, and this, and we want to look at Psalm 74. We want to look at this and we want to think about Jesus and how Jesus is an answer to the pleas of Psalm 74. He is an answer to these pleas. Now, I am sure there are things that I've missed, but and some of them will deal with more extensively than others. But when I think about Jesus and this psalm, first of all, Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, the term good shepherd is not used here. It does refer to Israel as the sheep of his pasture. In verse 1, it refers to him as his, his flock, or his, uh, his sheep. And Jesus, but that very image, calls forward the idea of the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do for his sheep? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ultimately, God's anger burns in a certain sense against the good shepherd for the people's sin. In Psalm 72 and verse, Psalm 74 verse 2, the word redeemed that is used in the Greek translation is used three times three times in the New Testament. In Luke 24, 21. In Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 and verse 14. And 1 Peter 1 verse 18. Each of these are reference to Jesus and the redemption He brings. This talks about, don't forget about the people that you have redeemed. God was going to bring a greater redemption through His Son. This is God suffering for His people. And they were lamenting the fact that the temple was destroyed. And I understand their grief to some degree. Maybe not as deeply as I should, but I understand that grief. I, I can't imagine what it would be like if a, if a pagan group of people destroyed this place and mistreated us in such a horrible fashion. The grief would be enormous. Jesus is the temple. And Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days... I will raise it up again. They destroyed the temple and he built it up. My son Nathan tells me I have sent him an outline I did years ago on Old Testament historical facts that foreshadow Jesus. He tells me I've sent it to him about 50 times. <laughs> but I told him, I said, I've got one more to add to the list. Think about that statement in John 2. The fact this temple was destroyed and rebuilt for shadows of resurrection. Think about it. Destroy this temple in three days 
I will build it again. Now, also, the statement is made in verse 9. We don't have any signs. They had pagan signs, but in Psalm 74, 9, we have no signs. And the word that he uses for signs is the word that is used for the miracles in the Gospel of John. In John 2.11, we could go on and on with this. John 4.48, It's used in chapter 6 a couple of times for the feeding of 5,000 and several other things like that. We have signs. They were saying, we don't have any signs. Yeah, he did plenty of signs now to show us we can trust him. And I'll tell you another passage that uses this is John 20, 30, and 31. Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these that are written are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. When we begin to doubt that Jesus is the Christ, we can look back at these signs and receive strength. We have no signs. We have no prophet. The people are saying, well, in Jesus Christ, when they entered in the the, uh, triumphal entry, they say, you know, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Matthew 1. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 11. Matthew 21, verse 46. They didn't lay hands on Jesus because they knew that he was a prophet. I could give a lot of other passages. But Luke 24, 19, Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. In Acts 3, 22 and 23, the Bible tells us that Jesus uh, was the prophet like unto Moses. And when Jesus, they said, God, these people revile your name. That verb, that word, revile, is used to talk about how they insulted Jesus on the cross. In Matthew 27, 44, Mark 15, 32. Romans 15, verse 3. I could give you a few more points, but I think we're we got two more minutes on this day. <laughs> Matter of fact, I'm going to do something. I'm going to cut this thing off.